from Great Britain via Israel to the world. This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. When it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, how often do you hear the phrase, it's complex, it's really complicated? Positions are so entrenched, so absolute, it seems the most intractable of conflicts in the whole world. But there is hope. Dr. Inat Wilf is a deep thinker on the biggest issue facing Israel, the pursuit of existence in peace and security, and she distills the issue into very simple, clear-cut headlines. She presented her thoughts at a Stand With Us UK event in London. Inat was born in Jerusalem and raised in a Labour Zionist family. She completed her Israeli military service as an intelligence officer with the rank of lieutenant. She then went to Harvard University and got a BA in Government and Fine Arts before earning an MBA from INSEED in France and subsequently a PhD in Political Science at Wolfson College, Cambridge. She describes herself as a Zionist, a feminist and an atheist. Inat says the Abraham Accords has created a competing narrative in the Arab world. We're hearing it in the Gulf from a new generation of peace-loving Arabs who recognize the path to growth, economic and spiritual. I expressly heard it myself. I went to the UAE and recorded these vital voices and brought them home for you. Scroll back a couple of episodes for Le'e al-Sharif. Jews and Muslims... Arabs and Israelis were always destined to be together and since we live in the same region, the Middle East, it would be better for us and for our region, for our children and grandchildren to live in peace, prosperity, security, rather than just living in a continuous conflict. And Amjad Taha. Terrorism doesn't have a religion. And it doesn't have an ethnicity. Terrorism is anyone that today puts an Israeli child in danger is putting a child of Egypt in, in danger too. And the person who, as much as I care about my children's right and my children's future, shall I, I should also care about the Jewish community's children in, in, in Jerusalem or in Tel Aviv or in, in Morocco or in Bahrain and so on. And now, courtesy of Stand With Us UK, here is Dr. Inat Wilf. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. I want to start by telling you a bit how I even came to think about it. Uh, I grew up in Jerusalem, in Beit HaKerem, uh, in a very kind of solidly labor, Zionist, classic Israeli left environment. Nobody in our neighborhood voted Likud, except the Olmert family who were our neighbors. And just so you understand how we treated them during the elections of 1981, there was a communal sukkah in our building, and we wouldn't let the Ulmer children in. Uh, so just, uh, this is kind of the background. And uh, as, uh, as I grew up, I, of course, became identified with the politics of the Labor Party, which into the 80s and certainly the 90s, 
became associated very much with the idea of peace. Labor actually very <coughs> successfully reinvented itself away from socialism as the party of peace. And it had a very compelling vision in those years. The vision was that Israel has a path to peace. And the path to peace is based on a very simple formula known as land for peace. First of all, why did Israel need a path to peace? Uh, as I'm sure you know, when Israel is born in 1948, none of its neighbors are willing to make peace with Israel. So in 1949, all of Israel's neighbors are willing, at most, to sign ceasefire agreements, basically indicating that the battle of 1948 may be over, but the war is not. So this is, for example, when people speak of the pre-1967 borders, they're not borders. Borders require agreement of two sides. Those were ceasefire lines in an ongoing war. So Israel's neighbors only agreed to sign ceasefire agreements. Israel is born without peace. And indeed, the war continues most uh, dominantly in 1967, where the Arab armies fail even more spectacularly than they did in 1948. And as you know, Israel comes into the possession of territories triple the size of Israel, the Sinai Peninsula in the south, the Golan Heights in the north, and the West Bank and the Gaza Strip in the center. And the sense develops that now that the, uh, the victory was so complete, so swift, and that Israel has all these territorial assets, now Israel has a path to peace. Israel will be able to trade those territorial assets, or some of them, in exchange for peace with its Arab neighbors. And for a while, land for peace seems like the winning formula. This is, of course, the basis for the peace agreement with Egypt. Uh, and we'll talk later as to what kind of peace is this peace agreement with Egypt, but officially it was peace. And they got all of the land, the Sinai Peninsula, all the way to the last square centimeter. Okay, so they get that. Uh, the 1990s, that was really the decade of land for peace, and it was a decade of euphoria. Now we kind of look at that decade and we can think, how could have we have been so naive? But you remember the 90s? The Soviet Union just collapsed. What the moment before seemed impossible, the next moment was inevitable. Uh, Good Friday Agreement signed in Northern Ireland, apartheid in South Africa came to an end. There was a sense in the air that the end of history, remember, and of course we're going to solve our conflict, and it's going to be based on the formula of land for peace. And the 90s is really the pinnacle of land for peace uh, negotiations, uh, Barack negotiates with Syria over the Golan Heights. Uh, there's a peace agreement signed with Jordan, another one, when Jordan gives up its territorial claims to the West Bank. And of course, to top it are the direct negotiations with the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, over the future of the West Bank and Gaza. In 2000, like many Israelis of the peace camp, 
as Ehud Barak goes to Camp David, I am euphoric. <coughs> Camp David is symbolic. This is where peace was negotiated and ultimately signed with Egypt. Ehud Barak goes to Camp David and puts on the table a proposal that addresses all the things that we were told are the obstacles to peace and what the Palestinians want. A fully independent, sovereign Palestinian state in the West Bank of Gaza with borders with Egypt and Jordan. So if people say that the occupation is the problem, that was going to end with the independence and sovereignty of Palestine. What else are we told is an obstacle to peace? Settlements. Well, settlements were going to be removed, dismantled, or exchanged for equivalent land. So the state of Palestine was going to emerge with no settlements. What else we're told? Jerusalem. Jerusalem was going to be fully divided. People forget how far-reaching the proposal was. All the Jewish neighborhoods were going to be part of Israel. All the Arab neighborhoods were going to be part of uh, Palestine. You know, when people think about Jerusalem, they immediately imagine the one square kilometer that I fondly call Insanity Central. But Jerusalem is 100 square kilometers right now in its municipal borders. 99% of Jerusalem are just neighborhoods. So they were going to be divided Jewish to Israel, Arab to Palestine. But even the one square kilometer was going to be divided. And holy sites were going to be part of Palestine. There were detailed discussions above and below the Temple Mount and the, the Kotel. So even Jerusalem, Palestine was going to have a capital in East Jerusalem, including holy sites. So check, check, check. Everything we were told the Palestinians wanted, everything they were fighting for, all they had to do was say, Yes. What do they do? Walk away. Arafat walks away in 2000. Abu Mazen walks away in 2008 from a similar proposal from Ehud Olmert. Maybe it had some impact, what we did. Uh, he became very left-wing. So Olmert um, puts an even more far-reaching proposal than Ehud Barak. And Abu Mazen, the heir of Arafat, walks away. Fine. You could say that walking away is a legitimate part of a negotiation process. But they walk away to no criticism from their people. Not even a Palestinian expat living in London writing an op-ed saying, are you crazy? We could have just had everything we've been fighting for go back into that room and get it for us. None. No one is voicing that kind of criticism. And in case you might say, Palestinian society, you can't be critical, there was a lot of criticism against Arafat and Abu Mazen for even daring to negotiate. So there was a lot of criticism from the other side. But there was no criticism for the fact that they walked away, meaning that both Arafat and Abu Mazen knew that in walking away, they were fulfilling their people's wishes. And not only do they walk away to no criticism, what follows, especially in 2001, 2, 3, 4, 
is a campaign of massacres misnamed the Second Intifada. You will remember it. I certainly remember it as the darkest time to live in Israel. There was a real palpable sense that you were playing Russian roulette with your life merely by getting out of your home. That if you boarded a bus, you could only hope that it would not explode. Going to a cafe with your friends became an act of resistance. And this happened weeks after the Palestinians could have had everything we were told they wanted. So a lot of Israelis, certainly from the peace camp like myself, began to ask a very simple question. Then what did the Palestinians want? What do they want? They clearly don't want to end the occupation and have a state because they could have had that and they didn't take it. They clearly don't want an end to the settlements. They could have had that and they didn't take it. They clearly don't want a capital in East Jerusalem. They could have had that and they didn't take it. Or you could say they might want all of these things, but there is something that they want so much more that at the critical moment, they're willing to walk away from having all these other things in order to preserve that other thing. What is that thing that they want so much more? Are you playing catch-up with Johnny Gould's Jewish State? I've had the pleasure of some really great guests. How about Douglas Murray? Israel is a rare country in the West uh, in that it does buck many of the trends. There isn't a fertility rate problem in Israel. Um, for instance, as there is in most European countries. There is a strong feeling of nationhood and of the depths that the country needs to call upon in order to unite its people. And Hillel Neuer, whose UN Watch keeps check on the excesses and mission creep of the UN human rights in Geneva. The challenges are great. They're not going away. I am concerned by the cultural revolution that we've experienced in America in the past five years, the known to some as the woke revolution, where there's a kind of a McCarthyism. If you say something, it could be cancelled and fired from your university, from your corporation, uh, from uh, journalists, and often it's uh, it's an anti-liberalism. So that, that to be honest, really, really scares me because we need our democracies to be healthy, to be honest, to be, to be truth-tellers. And so I am deeply concerned. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either patreon.com slash Johnny Gould or buy him a coffee. He loves coffee. ko-fi.com slash Johnny Gould. And what I realized at the time, I ended up meeting many Palestinians. Adi Schwartz, who ultimately became my co-writer for the War of Return, had similar experiences. We realized that to the credit of Palestinians, they've been saying for a century what they wanted. They've been consistent. We have not listened. 
or when we did listen, we didn't take them seriously. They always told us what they wanted. From the river, from the Jordan River, to the Mediterranean Sea, to the sea, one Arab Palestine, no Jewish state in any borders whatsoever. They've been very consistent about that and very clear. We just assumed that they can't still be insisting on that. But they did. And their actions bore fruit to that. As Adi uh, and I were working and researching the War of Return, we came across a fascinating speech by Ernst Bevin, the British foreign minister after World War II. I'm sure you know he was no friend to the Jewish people and no friend to Zionism. This is the foreign minister of Exodus. But he got it. He goes to the British Parliament in February of 1947 to explain why Britain is reneging on the mandate, right? It received a mandate from the League of Nations. It couldn't fulfill the mandate for the Jewish people. It fulfilled the mandate to the Iraqis, the Jordanians, but not to the Jews. And it's now throwing back the mandate to the heir of the League of Nations, the United Nations. And he has to explain to the British people in Parliament why Britain is doing that, because it was a mandate given to Britain on behalf of the world community. So he says the following. His Majesty's government has come to the conclusion that the conflict in the land is irreconcilable. This is February 1947. There is no occupation. There are no settlements. There is no Nakba. There are no refugees. Nothing. And still in February 1947, he calls it irreconcilable. He goes on to explain why. He says there are two groups in this land, Jews and Arabs. So there's no question about who the groups are, and it's not religions, it's two collectives, two nations, two peoples. Jews and Arabs in the land. And he says each one of them has one top priority. He calls it the point of principle. For the Jews in the land, the top priority is to establish a state. The Jews want a state. For the Arabs, the top priority is for the Jews not to establish a state. Notice the definition. He doesn't say, as in many other conflicts during that time, as empires recede and various peoples emerge. He's not saying, look, we have two peoples who want independence, and we're not really sure where to draw the border, so UN help us. He says the Jews want a state, and the Arabs want the Jews not to have a state. By definition, irreconcilable. And the best predictor of the behavior of both sides from that moment to the present. That's why the Jews say yes to partition. It serves their top priority of a Jewish state. And that's why the Arabs say no and go to war because partition doesn't serve their top priority of no Jewish state. So that's the conflict. When people tell you that the conflict is complicated, it's not. In its details, maybe, but in its essence, it's a very simple conflict. Sometimes I just say it in one phrase. 
It's a conflict between Jewish Zionism and Arab anti-Zionism. That's it. That's the conflict. Jewish Zionism, Arab anti-Zionism. That's the essence of the conflict. But if this is the essence of the conflict, and by definition irreconcilable, and nothing that happened, no, not the 1967 war, and not the settlements, and not the occupation, and not Israel's <coughs> establishment, changed that fundamental equation, then how will the conflict ever end? In Hebrew, we ask, you know, what? We're just condemned to always live in war? How does this conflict ever end if this is what it's really about? And it's a depressing idea because land for peace was compelling. Just give the land. Ending the settlements, ending the occupation, this at least are compelling. We can do something. But if it's fundamentally irreconcilable around the question of Jewish Zionism versus Arab anti-Zionism, how does the conflict end? Well, the answer is simple here too. The conflict ends when one of the sides forgoes their top priority. That's how the conflict ends. So one way that the conflict ends is that the Jews forgo Zionism. And there are a lot of efforts to get the Jews to forgo their Zionism. To get the Jews in Israel to say, you know what? All these wars, terrorism, boycotts, international condemnations, it's not worth it. We're out of here. Better places to live, we're gone. And if that happens, the Arabs will be able to tell a great story. We always told you that those were interlopers, foreigners, white European settler colonialists who stole the land that didn't belong to them. We told you that they were merely the second crusader state. And we told you that all we needed to do was wait them out. And we did, and they're gone. That would be a great story. The other way that the conflict ends is that the Arabs forgo their anti-Zionism. Now, for a very long time, when I said that this is the other way that the conflict ends in which the Jewish state is allowed to stand, it seemed far-fetched. How will the Arabs forgo such a fundamental element of who they've been for the last few decades? Happily, thanks to the Abraham Accords, I was able to finally begin to at least describe what it looks like when Arabs forgo anti-Zionism. You know, when the Abraham Accords were signed, there seemed almost a concerted effort to play them down. Not important, these are countries that were not at war with Israel, so it doesn't matter that they're now normalizing relations, they're small countries. It's a bribe, it's an arms deal, it's about Iran. Uh, so all of this, and I'm sure the fact that Trump and Netanyahu had something to do with the accords did not endear them to many people, so generally seemed to be almost a concerted effort to play them down. And I remember thinking in Israel that this was very odd because it was clear that they were not nothing. And the reason is that for many years we were told in Israel that what we have with Jordan and Egypt 
is the ceiling. That's just simply the best we could hope for until we make peace with the Palestinians. And what does the ceiling look like, just to give a sense? Yes, we signed peace agreements with Egypt and Jordan. Barely any diplomatic relations, no cultural relations, no tourism, no economic relations. Egypt continues to be the number one vying with Turkey promoter of anti-Semitic content to the Arab world. Um, Jordan and Egypt together are at the forefront of anti-Israel resolutions and in international bodies. I remember as a member of Knesset when I attended a conference in Jordan, it was clear that we were in a hostile country. We had to like stay at the ambassador's compound, which was part of the embassy. And I mean, we were in a hostile place. And we were told that this is peace. And not only that this is peace, this is the best we're ever going to get with any Arab country until we make peace with the Palestinians. But how are we going to make peace with the Palestinians when the Palestinian position is from the river to the sea? We're stuck. How do we get out of that? And the Abraham Accords just forged a new path because as soon as they were signed, this was a very different relationship. Those countries went all in. I have these Abraham Accords Twitter feeds every day. A new agreement is being signed, a new delegation in agriculture, in science, in space, in tourism, and a word about tourism. I want to say something about Emirates. For many years, the airline Emirates was Shangri-La. Israelis knew that there's this airline with a mythical first class <laughs> that they would never board. The psychological effect of seeing Emirates land in Ben-Gurion Airport, I can't tell you what that means. The sense of the lifting of the siege, the direct flights to Dubai, going to the airport and seeing the arrivals and departures full of direct flights to Dubai, that's something. And there's a lot of people-to-people -people exchanges, and I'm part of them, and in almost a reversal of what you hear from young Jews today, many of those young Emiratis, Bahrainis, would tell me in many of our conferences, they would say, you know, we feel that we've been lied to about Israel and Zionism, and we want to learn. And in their case, they're right. Um, and I found myself giving talks about Zionism to young Emiratis and Bahrainis. And two of them ended up co-writing an op-ed with me that started as follows. We're proud Arabs, proud Muslims, and Zionists. They didn't shy away from the word. They didn't try to find something else. They said we're Zionists. And we see no contradiction between our Arab and Muslim heritage and the support for the Jewish right to self-determination in their land. And the one message that they really wanted to include in this op-ed that was very important for them was that decades of Arab anti-Zionism have been an utter waste of time. As young people who live in a country that, true, is very small, but in the Arab world it punches above its weight. For 10 years running now, the UAE is the number one country that young Arabs want to work in 
and want their country to emulate. More than 80, 85% of young Arabs want that. Western countries like Germany, France, America, Canada are a distant second at 30%, which shows you that when they have a local model of Arab success, then that's what they want. And that model of Arab success is tied with normalization. This is the future. They were talking about anti-Zionism as something that belongs to Nasser, to their parents, grandparents' generation. It was something old, useless, futile for young people who see themselves as part of a successful Arab future. So they were able to help me begin to tell a story of what it looks like when Arabs forgo anti-Zionism. And it's all brilliantly named in one word, Abraham, right? I want you to understand that I'm under no illusions. The dominant narrative in the Arab world demonstrated so nicely in Qatar that is still that Israel is a white settler, European colonialist that is a foreign implant in land to which they have no connection. And therefore, of course, a temporary presence that just needed, needs to be waited out. That's still the dominant narrative in the Arab world. But for the first time, we have a competing narrative encapsulated in one word. If you were looking for one word to flip the idea of Israel as a foreign implant, you would find no better than Abraham. Because when Arabs and Muslims look at Jews and say, Abraham, they're basically saying, you're king. We recognize you as belonging, as having a history here, and by virtue of that, we are no longer trying to throw you out because you belong here and we embrace you. So that's what it looks like when Arabs forgo decades of anti-Zionism and recognize it as a waste of time. I'm also particularly thankful for the Abraham Accords because they were able to help me make another great point about the connection between Zionism and the attitude towards Israel and the attitude of a society towards its Jews. I've participated in quite a few debates on the question of whether anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And I've lost them all. And the reason is, except of course the very scary crowds, is that the theoretical argument, you're always going to find, you know, the other side is going to say, what about Satmar Jews? Fine, that's not what we're concerned about. But at one point I realized the theoretical argument is not important. Splitting hairs on the one person who is truly anti-Zionist because they oppose all nationalism but they're not anti-Semitic, that's not what the issue is. And I began to make the case just on the practical grounds that whatever a society, a political party, a country says about its attitude to Jews, whenever such places made anti-Zionism a central organizing principle, within a short time, the environment towards Jews turned hostile. Within a few years, there were no Jews left. 
And after some time, it was clear that it was all a waste of time. Exhibit A, of course, is the Arab world. The Arab world that had Jewish communities predating the Muslim and Arab conquests began to organize itself around the principle of anti-Zionism in the 40s. The Arab League was essentially organized on the principle of anti-Zionism. And they said that it's not about Jews and they love Jews. But within a few short years, the Arab world became intensely hostile to Jewish life. Within a few short years, there were no Jews left in the Arab world. And now, a few Arab countries are waking up to say, what a waste of time. The Soviet Union. Really, the Soviet Union doesn't get enough credit for its contribution to the issue. I mean, the Russians literally wrote the book, right? The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. But the Soviets, they deposed Tsarist Russia, and after World War II, they just won over the Nazis. They can't be anti-Semites. So they became anti-Zionists. And in the same tradition, they didn't just write a book. They turned it into a whole academic discipline that created respectability around the idea of anti-Zionism. The Palestinian leadership was all educated there. When people ask, why did Europe turn against Israel in the 70s, 80s? The answer is actually not Israel. The answer in this case, and in this case it's true, is Russian interference. It has been an ongoing Soviet project to introduce the idea of Zionism as colonialism, Zionism as racism, Zionism as imperialism, Zionism as apartheid. When some people wake up today and say, we just reached the conclusion that Zionism is apartheid, no, they didn't. They're echoing something that was developed and written decades ago and inserted into the West in a very methodical process. So the Soviet Union was only anti-Zionist, never anti-Semitic. But the Jews in the Soviet Union knew exactly what it meant. And as soon as they could leave, they left. And how exactly has anti-Zionism benefited the Soviet Union? Here, Jeremy Corbyn's Labor Party. I'm sure Jeremy Corbyn had great ideas for Britain. I don't know. I'm sure there was some great plan that he had on, I don't know, welfare. Who knows? But he was so obsessed with anti-Zionism. It was so consuming that the Labour Party became a hostile environment for Jews. Jews began to feel that they had to leave. And good for you for fighting back. Because the biggest mistake, and it's one that I've made for many years, that we made when it comes to the question of anti-Zionism is to think that it's a debate about Israel. And we begin to talk about what's going on in Israel. It's an assault on Jewish life in the places where Jews exist. Traditional anti-Semitism tends to have its supporters in places where there's not a lot of Jews. Not a lot of Jews are members of white supremacist organizations in the United States. But Jews are disproportionately represented in the media, in academia, in the place that we call the intelligentsia. And there, 
anti-Zionism is able to present itself respectably. Sometimes I compare the kind of white supremacist anti-Semitism to the danger without. It's lethal. But you know what to do. You build walls and you get protection. It's from without. The anti-Zionism is much more like domestic violence. It's from within. It gets you at home. It presents a respectable face to the outside. So at the end of the day, it's not a theoretical argument. There is not a single case, and I've searched and I asked people to prove me wrong. There's not a single case where a society, organization, political party, country, culture made anti-Zionism a central organizing principle and somehow it turned out well for the Jews. There's just no such case. And of course it doesn't turn out well for the anti-Zionists at the end, but it takes them a while to reach that conclusion. So the Abraham Accords made it possible for me to demonstrate not just what happens, because the Abraham Accords country, I don't know if you follow that, it's fascinating. As soon as they became pro-Israel and pro-Zionist, they wanted to also show that they're embracing Jewish life. Now, there's not a lot of Jews in the UAE, so they found a few expats who were living there. They assembled them, and from that moment on, they're celebrating all the Jewish holidays with them. <laughs> And again, my feed is uh, full of like lighting candles with the Bahraini ambassadors and the, you know kosher food on Emirates. And like, they really want to show that they're embracing Jewish life. So they were able to really help me make the case that not only when a country turns anti-Zionist does it become hostile to Jewish life, regardless of what it says. The opposite is also true. Countries that turn pro-Zionist, pro-Israel, also are countries that are more hospitable to just Jewish life. And this is ultimately why I ended up uh, naming my recent book of essays, We Should All Be Zionists, not just as a kind of provocative title echoing that we should all be feminists, which I'm also in favor. The idea that being Zionist is the path to peace. When Arabs, and ultimately one day Palestinians, hopefully forgo anti-Zionism, then we finally have a chance for peace. When countries embrace Zionism, they become hospitable to Jewish life. This is, this is something real. It's not just kind of a declaration. And... This is why also when people now worry and I worry about the new government, certainly all in all, not my people as they say, but uh, and I have concerns about religion and state and issues relating to women and minorities. The one place I actually don't have concern, and that's the one that everyone is up in arms about, Tom Friedman and the New York Times editorial, is the whole notion of the two-state solution. Because, and here I'm going to be quite clear, the only obstacle ever to a two-state solution has been the Arab and especially Palestinian insistence that one of the two states cannot be Jewish. 
That's it. That has been the obstacle. And why am I so convinced, and people sometimes think I'm delusional, that any Israeli government, right or left, will say yes to a genuine peace proposal from the Arab world and from Palestinians? Because at the end of the day, the Jews are a tiny, tiny, tiny ethnic, linguistic, religious, national minority in an overwhelming Arab and Islamic region. Sometimes I like to quote this number. In 1948, when Israel is established, the ratio of Jews to Arabs in the region is 1 to 50, 5 zero. So what do we do? We ask Jews to make Aliyah. Over 3 million Jews come. That's great. We make a lot of babies. I'm sure you know we're the most fertile, wealthy country in the world. Great. We are more than 10 times the number of Jews today in Israel. You know the ratio of Jews to Arabs in the region today? One to 60, so they've been busy too. And uh, there is no amount of immigration or procreation that would ever get the Jews out of the minority status in the region. So sometimes I do this little thought experiment when I speak to very right-wing audiences, even to settlers. When I started this thought experiment, it was genuinely insane, now a little less so. I say, let's imagine the king of Saudi, the king of Morocco, and the king of Jordan do a Sadat, and they come to the Knesset. And they give the following speech. We have come on behalf of the Arab world and Islam to tell you it's over. We're done. We have come to tell you that we will no longer fight you, not by armies, and not by boycotts, and not by terrorism, and not by international condemnations. Yes, your story about coming home after 2,000 years sounded odd at the beginning, but we understand that you are indeed the Jews, and that you have a connection to this land. And we have come here to tell you in the name of the Arab world and Islam, welcome home. But you know, those settlements up in Rechelim Gimel, they gotta go. At that moment, the West Bank is emptied. And if there are five settlers who think not, they'll find that no one's behind them. And I do this thought experiment. And the settlers themselves tell me, we know you're right. We know that fundamentally, the Jews of Israel, if given a real genuine choice to end the conflict, true peace, be embraced by the Arab and Muslim world, and the price of that will be the settlements on the hilltops in the West Bank, we know that's not a priority of the Israeli public. At the time, most of them would say, but it's never going to happen, so we're safe. Now they're less sure. But this is why I'm very confident, because at the end of the day, this is the story, it's a story of numbers. And this is why even a right-wing government, if faced with a true, genuine opportunity to make peace, will make, there'll be a two-state solution, there'll be territorial compromise, and if there will be a right-wing prime minister who will insist on saying no, he will be immediately replaced by an Israeli public who has always made its priorities clear which again, Ernst Bevan was correct to identify. At the critical moment when we had to choose, we always chose having a state 
even if it meant less land. And the other side, so far, has always chosen not to have a state if it meant that the Jews would also have a state. And if we're ever to get to peace, that's what has to change. So thank you very much, and I hope I have fulfilled my promise of public service. The best guests and their most heartfelt views. A relay of their missions to a worldwide audience. Hi, it's Johnny again, just popping in at the end of this one. 100 episodes along and I'm proud that it's fast become the podcast of record. This is coverage of the Jewish and Israeli world that just doesn't get properly aired in mass media. And I'm not ashamed to ask for your help. A one-off donation is always gratefully received to support my efforts, but a monthly donation really gets our service off the ground. Your donation can also be made with gift aid, and it's so easy to do, just click on this, donorbox.org slash jgpodcast. That's donorbox.org slash jgpodcast. Are you in? Please share my series with your friends and thank you for listening.